really excited to hear again from Rowan a sermon that he's actually prepared. Let us read from the Bible. We're in Mark chapter 8, uh, verse 31 to the end. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. But what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Good grief. <laughs> so what's going on? We've got the disciples and we've got Jesus. And mostly, up until this point, Jesus has been uh, talking mostly in parables. Um, but around this time, he starts being a lot more straight up in his teaching. Um, he's starting to talk a lot more openly about his imminent death and resurrection. Which Peter finds quite awkward. I imagine it's sort of like when you've got a friend with cancer and they start making cancer jokes and you're not really sure whether you're supposed to laugh or not. Um, so Peter goes to rebuke Jesus, and Jesus shuts it down. He says, get behind me, Satan, you've got your mind not on the things of God, but on the things of men. And Peter learns that he should never open his mouth ever again. <laughs> Often in the Gospels, the disciples give us a point of reference. They tend to be the characters that we um, can relate to. So if Jesus is Peter's friend, then it sort of makes sense to us that Peter probably isn't that keen on Jesus dying and probably doesn't want to hear about it. But then on the other hand, Jesus is the rabbi, Peter is the disciple. This isn't 21st century New Zealand. Jesus is not the facilitator for Peter's self-directed learning program. <laughs> the two were not equals, and the student does not correct the master. Nevertheless, Satan? Does that response seem pretty full-on to anyone else? It's like Jesus just snaps. I've been called a lot of things in my time, but seldom Satan, <laughs> and never by Jesus. And I'd like to keep it that way. But Satan is an interesting word. The English Satan comes from the Greek Satanus, not to be confused with the prominent rock guitarist Santana, but rather derived from the Hebrew Sotan, meaning adversary. Grammatically, you can have Satan with a capital S, or a Satan with a lowercase s, just like you could have God with a capital G, or a God with a lowercase g. The point is, Satan is called Satan because he's the adversary of God. He's the one that tries to frustrate and get in the way of God's plans. So by calling Peter Satan, 
Jesus is basically saying, you're getting in the way of God's plans. You don't need to read a whole lot of Bible to find an example of what happens when someone gets in the way of God's plans. It's not a very good position to find oneself in. The implication is that Peter should have known better. You know what happens two verses before the story starts? In Mark 8, verse 29, he, Jesus, asked them, the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. It was Jesus, sorry, it was Mark, no it wasn't, it was Peter and Mark talking about Jesus. <laughs> Let's start that again. It was Peter who correctly identified Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the one with God's anointing, the one operating with authority from God. So either Jesus is saying, you've identified me as the Messiah of Israel, as prophesied in Scripture, yet seem to somehow be missing what any of those Scriptures actually say about me. Or, you are identifying me as the one acting with God's authority, yet somehow you presume to rebuke me and think you know better. But either way, there's a misunderstanding. Peter is not fully grasping who Jesus is or what he came to do, because those two things are tied together. Jesus came not primarily to teach, although that is a common misconception that you'll hear if you ask a random person on the street who they think Jesus was. If they think he existed at all, many of them will tell you he was a great moral teacher along the lines of Gandhi or someone like that. Not so. Nor did he come primarily to heal people and perform miracles, though he did do those things. Jesus came, God in human form, to live as one of us, to be tempted as one of us, to suffer as one of us, to die, executed, to pay the ransom for many, atoning for the sins of humankind and reconciling us to the Father, and to rise again overcoming death itself, and ascending to sit at God's right hand. Life, death, and resurrection. This is the heart of God's plan. Not you, and not me. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if we miss that, if we miss who Jesus is, and what he came to do, then we are similarly at risk of operating as adversaries to the kingdom of God. Then, what does it mean to follow? If Peter was too afraid to now ask that question, Jesus answers it anyway. If anyone, did it again, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will find it. Jesus isn't trying to trick anyone. He's kind of saying, if you want to follow me, then follow me. But let's be clear about where this road actually leads. 
Take up thy cross. Now, I'm not a gambling man, but I'm going to make a statistical assumption that of all the people in this room tonight, approximately zero are going to die by means of crucifixion. <laughs> I could be wrong. I hope I'm right. But we'll call that an educated guess. Does that make us unfaithful to Scripture? Probably not. But it depends on your interpretation of the phrase, take up your cross. If you're like me, and have been around a lot a few times, you've heard this phrase so many times, that now you read over it, and your eyes just skim straight past it, and you don't really give it a second thought. And then we've all seen renditions of the crucifixion, in art, and on film, and films like Passion of the Christ, or the Jesus film, if you're a bit more old school. We see these images, and we think, hey, that looks quite hard. And many of us imagine ourselves physically picking up some mysterious metaphorical burden associated with Christianity, and proceeding down the road with that on our shoulder. But I'm going to offer my interpretation of this, which is a little bit different. And I've got to stress that this is my interpretation, and you're allowed to disagree with that. Just because I'm the guy at the front doesn't make me right. You can come to your own conclusions, do your own reading, and discuss it in your discussion groups. How about that? I'm going to argue tonight that Jesus does not want nor expect you and I to go and get crucified as a means to inherit eternal life. Nor do I think that we are to shoulder any metaphorical cross either. To the best of my understanding, the cross in this passage is not a metaphor. It is, though, a shorthand for persecution and death. So the phrase, take up your cross, we can replace with, get persecuted and die. Now, in Jesus' time, and in Mark's time, which was a little later, crucifixion was the most likely form that this would take for Judeans living under Roman rule. It was the means of execution for enemies of the state, those who revolted against empire rule. The taking up of the cross is the image that we get from the Gospels and, um, excuse me, from the Gospel films, where the convicted criminal was forced to carry the instrument of their own execution through jeering crowds to the site where it would eventually take place. It was a means of adding insult to injury. Crucifixion was not a good way to go. It was the execution for the scum of the earth. But there were other options and other governments available to administer them. So maybe we're talking actual cross, maybe we're talking get the head with a sword, maybe stoned, maybe beaten to death, maybe thrown to wild animals, but we're still talking about real persecution and death. So how do we reconcile that? Well, I think there are two things that trip us up. One is that we're not the original intended audience for this passage. And two, there's a set of logic that we miss that's implied but not stated explicitly. 
So it's widely thought that Mark's Gospel originated in about 70 AD, right about the time when Judea was at war with Rome. And Judea lost. As a result, the temple got destroyed and a whole lot of folks got crucified. So the image was pretty fresh in the minds of Mark's audience. Similarly, to those who would follow Jesus in the first century, there was a pretty good chance that doing that would also lead to a persecution and execution. But if this is what Jesus wanted for his followers, then why does he say in Mark 14, 38 to his disciples, keep away from all of you and pray that you do not come into the time of trial? See, I don't think it's the death that Jesus wants. It's the life that leads to the death. It's a fine distinction. To my understanding, what Jesus is saying here is, if you want to follow me, then follow me. Live as I have lived. Live in a certain way. And in this context of first century Palestine, living in that certain way will more than likely get you killed. In other contexts, maybe it won't. The martyr's death is the calling for some. The faithful life is the calling for all of us. There have been many times in my life where things have not turned out the way I expected them to. And I find myself praying a prayer along the lines of, God, I don't understand. I don't see you in this. I don't know what you want from me. And I don't know what you want for me. I just don't get it. See, just when I am starting to think that I can see God working in my life, when I'm starting to see God's plan unfolding, something changes, and then I'm back at square one, left um, disappointed and confused. I want to be able to see my life as part of some grand narrative. But the narrative that I'm looking for, one with me at the centre, this is a human invention, it's not a divine one. I spent a long time looking for my God, the God's plan for me, when really I would have been a lot better off aligning myself to God's plan for all of creation, because that is a plan that we can all know. God's constant turning towards humanity, redeeming us through the power of His love, mercy, justice and faithfulness. The establishment of his kingdom rule on earth and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If my life, if my deeds, if my words don't point towards this reality, then I, like Peter, am guilty of having my mind not on the things of God but on the things of men. Because that is our default state. That is the grain of the world. It's the state where we point to ourselves, where we elevate ourselves, but that is not the faithful life. He must increase, I must decrease. To remind ourselves of the truth of who Christ was, 
and what he came to do. This is to realign ourselves with the reign of God's kingdom. And that is the state from which we might be able to follow. Because the order is important. It's faith and works. It's roots and branches. Faith and works go hand in hand, but it's through faith that we are justified before God. Faith must come first. As we remind ourselves of the truth of Christ, then following the faithful life, this is the natural and appropriate response. The faithful life is not the cross, though it may lead to it. On the 14th of September, year 258, under the reign of Valerian, Bishop Cyprian of Carthage went before Proconsul Valerius Maximus on charges of failing to offer sacrifice in accordance with the state religion of the Roman Empire, and he was found guilty. In response to the final sentence, it is the decision that Theseus Cyprian be put to death with the sword. Bishop Cyprian simply said, Thanks be to God. This is the kind of faithfulness that we are called to, even in the face of persecution and death. I can't water this down. This is what it means to follow.